Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Joe McGrath, and if you're not familiar with Joe, Joe is a producer, recording, and mix engineer based out of Ireland, where he runs a studio called Hellfire Recording Studio. And in today's episode, we cover a lot of ground as far as starting up a studio, you know, building it from the ground up, how to get clients with your studio when you're getting started in the business. We talk about some of the struggles that Joe faced early on. Uh, battling through a recession and and trying to make money from his business during a time when people were claiming that they didn't have money and all that stuff. So we get into how Joe survived all of that and how he was able to build his studio into something much bigger. Now, Joe also has a big background in acoustic design, which came as a result of him building his studio. And so we talk a lot about acoustics and how people like yourself, even if you're working in a small home studio, whether it's your bedroom or a basement or whatever, how you can get the best results. And I think you'll be really surprised by some of Joe's answers here, because as you'll see, you might already have more than you need. So I guess that's a spoiler alert. But anyway, I think that uh, there's a lot of great stuff that we cover there. And then Joe is also very creative as far as the way he goes about engineering his projects. So we definitely talk about that and some of the unique mic positions that he likes to do. And I think that this is all stuff that you can certainly take and implement in a home studio. So with that said, let's just jump into this one because I think you're going to really find this fascinating. Joe McGrath, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Absolutely great. It's great. And thank you so much for asking me. I'm I'm quite excited to see where this all goes today because it's quite an open-ended process, which I think sums up recording. So yeah, uh, yeah it's good. <laughs> I'm excited for this. It'll be a lot of fun. For people who might not know you or might not know your background and who you are, what you do these days, can you give us that story of who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into music production? Yeah, I suppose I, I run a recording studio in Ireland in, uh, just outside Dublin, the capital. And um we're we're open about fifteen years. Um, we've got five live rooms, a control room, three two studios, a third one being built at the moment. And I, I'm the owner, head engineer, the kind of studio manager. But then we've got a lot of you know other engineers and producers who come and rent the place, who use it. Um, so sometimes I'm a facilitator as well, which is great. Um. And I suppose, how did I get into all of this? I suppose uh, I grew up, I played a little bit of music when I was growing up. And in the 80s, I was into a lot of music. And the 90s, there was a lot, dance music came in the 90s, you know, for Ireland. So I was into DJ and I was also into making electronic music, which at the time was essentially you had to, you know, build yourself a little studio. So I had a, you know, I had a Mackie desk. I also had a Soundcraft as well, I think. Had a lot of synths, some drum machines, and I was working Cubase in the nineties. It was all going down into that, and I suppose near the end of the nineties, you know, I had a lot of players, friends who were still playing a bit of music, and studio time was still very expensive for people at the time, and they wanted to do a little bit of recording. So I, I bought a mic. You know, I think our, our my first gig recording was someone wanted to do the theme tune to just the top of a TV show over here. This is going to sound terrible, but the first bike I bought was a Neumann TLM 103. I didn't even go for a dynamic, you know. <laughs> That's what I needed, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, it was a good little project and it afforded it. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing. Um, I think I possibly had a 57 or something like that before for doing a little bit of sound stuff. But that was the, the really the start of me getting fascinated with recording, you know. Um, um, acoustics, the acoustics straight off, that was a really interesting thing. How do I get this to sound good in the room? Um, when I moved them around, we were doing a bit of guitar, we were doing a bit of vocals. And that was the start of just something really clicked in me, you know. Um, and from, I think from the electronic music, you know, I, I'd realized in that that your source material is everything. Mm. And, you know, if, you had a, if your synth sound wasn't fully right, you're never going to get it to EQ it to get, you know, something that's really, really good. You'll only ever make it acceptable. So that mind frame was already in me. And then once I got into the acoustics, 
in my head of recording. I really liked that and the spaces and how you could change the sound with one, even with one mic in a room. What you're capturing the character of it, um, that started to really fascinate me. And I loved what I really loved was coming from electronics and dance music, where I'd been for a few years, which was primarily, you know, you're you're a producer by yourself. You're not really collaborating. Maybe you have someone in or out. The collaborative nature of recording and the more art people you had in, it, it just, I, I, I really love that. I love people in a room. I love what happens. I love that energy. The brainstorming that happens when there's a creative freedom, when an idea starts somewhere and it rolls out. And that was kind of what fascinated me. So, we have, we're looking over the Dublin Mountains. We're, we're in the Dublin Mountains looking over the city. Nice. Um, my family are originally farmers here. So, you know, but it's still only 15 minutes for us to drive to the centre of the city. It's kind of a bit of a, an oxymoron of a location, you know. We're That's rural, cool. but we're city. Um, so I asked my dad for some of the, derel- one of the old derelict farm buildings, I said, in, and he offered me two. And the larger one had a few extra rooms in it. Um... So I took that and I started renovating that into a recording studio. I said, that's primarily because of the idea there's live rooms in it, I could see. Um, that took me about seven years. For yeah, studio builds do not happen quickly to do it properly. <laughs> do you know the, the best description I just, that I got of, of, of a studio build was from... Uh, a guy who sold me a lot of the gear, Funky Junk in London. They're they're great. They're great dealers. Um, he said it's like having a cold shower with a bunch of fifties in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is. It's it's a tough process, and it's always going to cost way more than you thought. Uh, so for me, it was a lot of how to get money at the time, how to get this bill done, how to get it over the line, and eventually we got opened. Um a recession we had a major recession kind of like you you know the same as when layman's went in 2009 uh, at the start of that and that affected you know it was a worldwide recession and that really affected ireland as well very badly so it was it wasn't a great time to open a business and it's never a great time to have an arts business anyway you know (laughs) um and so that was particularly it was a tough it was a tough few years there but i think you know, you in, there was really positives to it that you really learned to cut your cloth to fit. Mm-hmm. You know, make what money you got. You really prioritize it into things where were important, the things that were important for your clients at the time. Um, but it also the negative of what was it? You you got used to operating on less money, which I don't think is which took me a little while to get out of. Once we started, when as soon as we came out of recession, I think there's a little bit of that undervaluing yourself, underpricing yourself, um, which you know, anyone working for themselves will always struggle with and coming out of a restra- recession. Um, it took a while to get around that. Um, and I, So it was a challenging time, but we got up and going. And I suppose March 2015, uh, it, it, around 2015, it became busy. And it's kind of steadily grown through the years through that. And we're lucky, I suppose, the highlights of where we've gone, things that we've got a number of Irish awards, folk awards, albums of the years and kind of in Irish award ceremonies and stuff like that. And two years ago, the Rihanna Giddens album, that won uh, Best Folk Album at the Grammys. And the new Lancome album was just nominated for a Mercury Prize this year. Uh, and we've, we're lucky. We've got been in a few publications, that sort of stuff. But generally, it's... It's been through people who really love the music that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And we've been lucky enough to host them to do it, you know. Uh, so that's kind of, I suppose that's kind of a general story of, of kind of the, the chronological history of the place, you know. I love that, though. And I think that it's, it's kind of cool that you touched on the fact that you guys did go through that recession and you were still able to make it through the other side. And I think that that, that goes to show that, like, you know, for most people, it's like they just give up at that point, right? Like things are tough, like, you know, and it goes to show your resilience. And I think that that's really important. Um, and I also think you kind of touched on this, like that you probably learned a lot of lessons during that time in terms of like providing value to people so that, you know, like, like kind of like you alluded to earlier that like it's never a good time to start an arts business because, you know, a lot of people getting into the arts business feel like people don't want to spend money, you know, like musicians are cheap or whatever. Like there's this kind of like 
stereotype that that exists about that kind of stuff. Um, but the truth is that there are people that are still willing to spend money on this stuff. You know, it's just a matter of like finding the right people and finding the right value. And um, I feel like the fact that you sustained yourself through all of that um, goes to show that you you were you were doing something different than most people would. You know. Yeah, I think I I suppose for the people who really stick at you know a creative industry long term, there, there's it's kind of a vocation. You know, there there is a lot of the time there isn't another choice for you. You know, and even if it's bad, you'll work your way through it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that can be that can be especially difficult, I suppose, as family commitments. And for a lot of people, as you get older, maybe they'll have kids or just life moves on, and it, it can be hard being, you know, being tighter to the breadline. Essentially, you know, mm-hmm. at, at times for people. But yeah, you do learn. You you do have to be resilient, but you you do also have to have to want, have to have a business frame of mind at some point to go you know this is my job if so if I went somewhere else because I think a good audio engineer is a very very employable person across sectors because in general they're really good with people they're quite technically minded they're good at you know they're good at scheduling they're you know they're normally reasonably decent if you're running a studio of any sort with a bit of cash um and you know that's a very employable person you know, a lot of any tech company would take that person and give them, a, you know, feed and give them a little bit of training, and and they would be a valuable employee. So, I think in Ireland, because we've got do have a big tech industry, we probably lost a lot of creatives in that recessionary period to tech companies, uh, just because of the skill set. Um, so yeah, it 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 yeah, you do have to be resilient, but it, it, the rewards can be really great, you know. And I think the rewards, the creative rewards, are. I think if it's long term, I think you have to be getting good creative rewards out of it mm-hmm. because ultimately we're creative people and you want to be involved with creative people of what you like, you know, that gives you something back in it. And if you're getting that, then learning to put a value, a proper value on it, that it's essentially like a living wage if you want to take it that way or whatever it is, but that it becomes a, you know, a, a sustainable business. Um, because I think for a lot of people without the huge, you know, if you went in the nineties, if you got a big band in, they had a huge, you know, they have a huge budget. You're going to make a bit of money out of it and, you know, it'll keep you going. And now, you know, the budgets aren't the same, but I think there's a creative freedom to artists as well that, that wasn't there. So I think you have to be getting that creative freedom. At least that you definitely need to be getting that to keep you resilient. For sure. Um, well, yeah. for me, I I definitely had to be. Anyway, I'm saying you, but I'm yeah, that's, yeah. that's not fair to generalize. And um, but I I needed that, and I think that that was one of the things I suppose that I was very lucky with. That because I'd taken, we had two buildings in the farm. Let's say that I was offered, and they're both pre eighteen hundred. These buildings are, <clears throat> and one was smaller. And if I taken that, it was a fantastic view over the city out to the bay. But it, it would have been just a mixed room with two nice booths. And the fact that I took the one that had the the potential to have live rooms in it, and I did that. I got people who liked to play to music together, which was the thing I really liked was having people in the room, and we got really good players. And I think that was really helpful, though. Even though the projects were a little bit thinner on the ground at that time, around two thousand and ten, the the quality of the players we got that I got in was hugely fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what gave me a lot of hope in that time, you know, at least you were working with, if I'd been working with bands that I didn't like and weren't able to, you know, that it was just constant editing and just auto-tuning, I, you know, I, you could probably have counted me in the giving up plane as well. <laughs> so I think I was lucky to get, I suppose, what I'm trying to say is I was lucky to get the kind of creative acts through that actually sustained me through that period, you know? Gotcha, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, if you're, if you're enjoying what you're doing, you're going to be more likely to keep going at it, right? So yeah, uh, pretty simply, yeah. That, that, yeah. that was that was a that was a, a you know a five second synopsis of my <laughs> ramble there. <laughs> no, it's all good. But I think it's I think everything you said is perfect. Um, but it's interesting, like so you know going you kind of started like you were like I'm going to build the studio one day, and you built you you take on this massive building. It's taken you seven years to to build this thing. Um, a lot of people. 
you know, who are getting into getting, you know, uh, running a studio themselves, like the first thing that's in their mind is like, I don't even know how to get clients. You know, like, where do I, where do I get clients? I want to work with people. I want to get paid for my skills. And like a lot of that, that's the thing that holds up a lot of people. Like some people won't even start spending the money on building the studio until they know that they can get those clients. And it sounds like you were kind of just like, let's do it. If we build it, they will come kind of thing. Uh, and that, the rest there, of- a, there was definitely an element of feel the dreams in my deluded brain. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, and then you're building it and then you're like, oh, shit, there's a recession happening. So, so as far as like getting started with like getting some of those early clients into that studio, like where did you start there? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I, I started with my phone book. I started with everyone I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I started and I was ringing people and just kind of going your friend is in a band you're this you know that and I started really reaching out like it's not like I didn't know a lot of people that played music yeah. but I had to go and reach out I had to go physically get them drag them up or see the place um, and really try per, you know it was very much doorstepping mm-hmm. and people I knew and ringing them and kind of going and getting people to just kind of spread a bit of word as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'd say it was, you could call it networking in one way. There was all of that, which, you you know, it was just putting, you know, going into a lot of gigs, uh, which I, I can't, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things, reaching out to people um, in a genuine way. If you go in and see a band and you actually really like them and you go up and say, like, I, lo- I really like what you do. I like that. I'm running this place. If you'd like to come out and see it, and if you're interested, I'd, you know, I'd love to do, do something with you if it was possible, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, they might've just finished recording. They, you know, so they, but next time around in a year, they might think about you or they might even just drop out and see it. And sometimes a lot of that was just getting some people to come out and see what you do, mm-hmm. hear what you're doing and see the place, um, have a coffee, you know, because ultimately, if you're going to be in a, in a room with people for, you know, extended periods of time, if they can sit with you, have a coffee and enjoy your company, you know, that, that's, yeah, I think that's the first step to ever anyone employing anyone, you know, in, mm-hmm. in this gig. Because uh, no, no, no one wants to spend time, you know, however long it is with someone who's a dick. That's, yeah. You know, not, sorry, yeah, for sure. excuse my French, but, you know, that, and... It's, it always amazes me the amount of times you hear artists come in and kind of go, oh, this is a great experience cause, because last time, blah, 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 or I had this experience, blah, blah, blah. That was just so negative. I can't understand why you'd ever, someone who's going to give you money and wants you to work creatively with them, you're not going to treat them with the utmost of respect. And mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's at, at no matter what, at what level it is, it's still a, a really nice thing for someone to have, trust you with their music to let mm-hmm. you do something with it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I kind of, I'm not sure where I'm ending that there, but, you know. No, but I think I think that's actually a really cool approach. That, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right that you have to be someone who people are comfortable with. And I like that you took that approach of like, you know, I got the studio, come on, come on by, check it out. You know, like, I think there's a lot of musicians who just want to be around other musicians or be in a studio and see the, the gear. Like, you know, people, a lot of our, a lot of us musicians are very nerdy technical people. So we like seeing all the toys and we're fascinated by all that stuff. So that like, that little like, um, you know, dangling the carrot of like, oh, come check out a cool studio. Like people are into that. So, you know, uh, so I think that's a cool way to get people in the door. And then at, you're right. At that point, you just like, let's just have a coffee. Let's just chill. Let's let's become friends. And and that makes it that much easier for people to want to continue to work with you or want to try you out, you know? Yeah. And ultimately, it's understanding what people want. You know, if a band comes out, like if you're, you know, most of the time, maybe they're interested in the pre's. Maybe there is the one guy or girl in the band who's like a, interested in the techie end of it. But a lot of musicians, they're they're going to be more interested in what the drums sound like. What maybe mm-hmm. you know? Do you, oh, you have a you have a telly or you have a Les Paul or you've this amp or that, and so making sure that you you kind of understand what your customers are looking for. You know, of course. And if a, if a producer's here or an engineer, the conversation's quite different. Mm-hmm. than when a band are here, you know? Yeah. Um, and I suppose, yeah, just understanding your client base. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't necessarily think that, like, 
that means that you need to have all of the fancy equipment and all that stuff. Nope. Like, obviously, there's for some people that's impressive, but I think at the end of the day, it's like the personality thing is always the biggest. And as long as you're cool, as long as you share the same vision for the band with their music as they do, like those are the things that are going to get you the gig. It's not necessarily your gear. No, it it well, the gear will the gear will very rarely get you the gig. You know, um, but even if it's re- showing them stuff you've recorded on the gear that you have, you know, that they can come in and they can sit down, you can pull it up or you can solo. Let's say you record drums in the room, you can solo the drums and you can say, oh, here they are. And they can go, actually, they sound really great. And you're like, there's no EQ or compression on that. They see no plugins and you're just kind of going, going okay. So that's what we get before we've ever touched a thing. And they're like, going, okay. So, and and that comes down to skill because you can do all that with you know a load of fifty sevens, mm-hmm. you know, and and two tome and my two tome and ribbons overhead <laughs> or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's it's really, it really isn't about it. It really isn't about the money and, uh, like the gear. I don't think I've very rarely got you know a producer might will will book us kind of going oh you have a neve they'll come out to see that, fair enough. But I would say. Over 90% of musicians who come in, they have no idea that what that board with all the buttons is, what brand it is, what it mm-hmm. is. They just think, oh, that's a that's a console there, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it could be just, you know, it could be a, a 32-channel yeah, Soundcraft or it could be, a, you know, an API Legacy. They have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they will, if they feel comfortable and their headphone mix is good and their vocal sounds good, well, then they're happy, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's funny. I used to, um, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but I used to work out of a, another studio and um, the owners of the place had bought this, they they bought this like massive Studer console and uh, they, they were, they spent like a year trying to wire this thing up and it just sat like dead in the, in the control room for, for like a year. But during that year, they had this like small little like I want to say it was like a eight channel Behringer board that they ran all of their sessions through, you know? <laughs> and, and it was funny cause like nobody cared, you know, it was like that. They had this big board. They thought this is going to be like the centerpiece that everyone's going to like be crazy all over. And we're going to get gigs because of this board. And like, there was never any lights on it. It was completely dead. And they just had this little Behringer that did all the work. And But they were keeping busy because they were making people comfortable. They were making them happy with the results. And it didn't matter what gear they were using. It, at the end of the day, it was just all about everything you just talked about there, where it's like the, the comfort and the the results and, and you know, impressing people. So, um, yeah, it really doesn't matter what gear you have. No, it really doesn't. I don't think, like... There's no record that's ever been made that pe- someone's gone, oh my God, if they'd only used X mic there, it would have <laughs> been a hit. Yeah. It's never been the microphone's fault, <laughs> you know? And it really doesn't matter. I, I've, like, even though I have loads of that vintage gear, but, it, you know, you come in in the morning, none of the gear has ever made a tune by the next morning, you know? It's, yeah. you know, it, it's ultimately, <laughs> it, you know, it's a people game. And like you say, and I have to say, you know, it's, you're 100% right. If people are comfortable and people love it, um, they're going to give you a great performance. And that's really what matters. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, 100 percent. I love that. It, it's, it's never been the microphone's fault. I love that. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you talked earlier about how um, you became really fascinated with the acoustic side of things and, you know, moving from like an electronic world to like getting into like microphone placement and and ultimately i mean you built your own studio so you had to learn a lot about acoustics to be able to do that properly um so to my understanding you've actually you actually have a background in acoustic design now right like did you study that stuff yeah i've done a good bit of it i suppose i suppose i should maybe just let people know how i got into that um there's an australian designer called john l sayers he passed away a few years ago and he basically ran an online forum and mm-hmm. um, he's an acoustic designer studio designer since the 70s he's quite well known he's really good and he had a he kind of you know as a forum you could put up your size of your room and think say what you're kind of doing he'd give you this really you know he'd put up a really basic you know turn your have your console this way or whatever it is to size your room face it this way you know some corner traps over here there's no dimensions or design on it 
but basically a rough layout. And then you could go through the form, through stuff he's put up and learn what all those traps were, learn how to build them. You could go into all of that. So I did spend kind of four years studying as I was renovating because it was a few years before I got to the acoustics part. I was literally doing rebuilding walls, that sort of stuff. Um, And so I spent about four years really studying that sort of stuff. And at the end, I remember I rang him and you could do some consultation phone calls with him. And he was a great guy because when I was going through the designs of things, I'm asking, you know, what should I do here? I could, you could hear his brain. You could hear it ticking as he was tuning what would happen if we moved this in the room. You know, I, I could hear that like, oh, you know, that'll, actually that'll be better for the highs or the lows. You could, yeah, you could hear that happening. But a really interesting thing he said to me, and there was an acoustics part of his forum, you know, and he said two things that always stuck with me was one, always designed to your environment, you know. So if you're in the middle of the country and the worst you're going to hear is a bird song on the background when someone's doing a take, you know, don't, you know, design to that level mm-hmm. you know, of outside noise if you need, you know, sound reduction. But the other thing he said was the acoustics part. He just said, Joe, you know, he goes, listen, mate, never go in there. He said, it's just, they're crazy, you know, <laughs> because for him, it was completely overspecked. You know, you have someone who wants to do drums in their garage and they're cutting out subfloors, they're separating, you know, it's a floating subfloor on this. And, you know, they're spending this colossal amount of money just to be able to, dr- to record some drums during the day which they could do anyway because their neighbours probably aren't home and stuff like that, you know. Um, and that always stuck with me when it came to acoustic design, you know. It's, it's, it's keep it very simple um, and only do what you really need to do. Um, and, and the one thing I really kind of, I suppose acoustic design to me is you kind of know most things about a room when you're just standing in it talking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you can hear if it's boomy, if it's sharp. You know, you get a you get a good feel of that, or if it's if there's a lot of, you know, you can hear the phasing going on on your voice. Um, and I think that was one of the things where I really liked acoustics, where it makes sense to me with mic placements, because you walk around, you hear an instrument in a certain way at this point, and it's like, oh, here's here's where that's what I'm missing in the instrument. So I'm going to put a mic here to capture that, or that's where that's going to help that sit in the mix. So, you know, that ability to walk around, um, that always stuck with me. And he, he always said that. He said that to me. It was just like, you know, always listen to your voice in the room, um, which I thought was great advice. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. and now, obviously, you know, you, you do a lot of stuff which is a little bit more technical, but it still comes down to that. If, it, if your voice is very even in a room, you know you're in a good place, you know? Of course, yeah. I love that. Well, I know a lot of people listening to this, like they don't have the ability to build out fancy big rooms or any of that kind of stuff. And, and it yeah. sounds like what you're saying is you don't really need to. Um, so with that said, like what advice would you give to people who are maybe working from home and trying to make the most out of a small bedroom or basement and that kind of thing? Um, I'd say the, first, the most important thing is, is make sure you're buying monitors that suit the size of the room. You know, if your speakers are too big for the room, there's just going to be too much volume. There's just going to be too much excitement going in the room. The absorption, you, you, you're never going to get the correct absorption going, you know? So small rooms, small monitors. Um, and you can get amazing small monitors. I've, like, I have a large pair of three-way ATCs, but on, my, on the top, I have a little pair of Neumann's KR120s, you know, mm-hmm. um, as my secondary near fields. I think they run a, they're about a grand, you know, for mm-hmm. the pair. But you can get a lot of stuff in that size. I think they are, they look about in, they look about 11 inches tall. You know, okay, so they're yeah. not a big monitor. Eight inches, seven inches wide, 11 inches tall. And they're a great little monitor. Um, uh, Adams of that size. So a small monitor that suits, suits the size of the room. Uh, what are the other things? Because I've done a good bit of stuff for people who, who basically like have, a spare box room in their house and their basement. Cause I'd have loads of musician friends yeah. who do this as well, who do the exact same thing. We'd come down and we'd just buy a bit of timber and we'd make some traps. And you know, your four corner, your, well, your, 
the eight corners of the room where, you know, the four on the floor and the floor and the, and the four on the ceiling where they meet, that's where most of the base, you know, they're the hot spots that collect base. So if you can get anything in some of the corners, you know, that's going to take out more for your base than anywhere else. And like you have some traps on your wall either side, if you've got even two of those, one either side of you and one above your head, mm-hmm. you'll probably have a decent kind of little mix space. Fairly handy if your monitors are the right size. You know, it's, I'd say, you know, if you can do it yourself, you know, probably a few hundred dollars in your, you know. Yeah. And you could have a decent sound in a little space. For sure. You know, I've had things where, I remember one friend, he had a, it was a box bedroom and at the back there was a wardrobe, you know, across the wall. Mm-hmm. So when he was mixing, we, we, he just filled it up with all his spare clothes and he just opened the doors. <laughs> And there it was works. a box, you know, there was a shelf at the top. Yeah. So just on the top shelf, we stuffed that with rock wool just to collect bass. <laughs> and that was it. His, his wardrobe essentially just became a giant bass trap. Love it. You know? Um, so it's, it's work with what you have. And it's, uh, like, you know, I've loads of people I know who do great mixes in rooms which traditionally would be like, oh, you can't mix in a room that size. Or, you know, it doesn't have blah, blah, blah. And these guys are doing amazing mixes. Mm-hmm. So, because they've just taken a little bit of time, you know, um, to figure out what the best part of it is. And you'll nearly always hear something. You'll nearly always hear where the poor, you'll, you won't get it perfect, but you'll hear where the, where the spot that has a problem, a real problem is, and you'll know not to sit there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, I think, I think you can do so much. You can, you can really do so much with not a lot of money, you know, um, and a good pair of headphones, I suppose, that you can kind of balance things with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that you talked about just like, yeah, the wardrobe. Like, that's such a, an easy thing that, like, you know, most people listening to this are, are probably working out of a bedroom or something like that, and yeah. that exists. So use it, you know? Don't think it's a disadvantage. Like, actually use it, as, use it to your advantage and, and uh, you know, realize that you, do, you don't need it to be like, a fancy space like you could use what no, you have not at all you know it's because the other side of that when the doors are closed it was a hard reflective service surface yeah. so once you open them it took so much out of the room in that top end you know yeah um but like you know i think we all well not all i definitely would you know you you look at what you have and you feel it's inferior whereas when you kind of start getting the mindset of look at what i have and what you know and just thinking about what you can get the maximum out of that is, mm-hmm. I think that's when you're going to achieve your most, you know? Yeah. Um, because, like I said, it's, you know, there's so many people who they just do amazing things in small spaces. Yeah. Know? I think that, like, people see these big pictures, of, like these pictures of big studios, and they see all, like, the diffusers and bass traps and all these other, like, different types of acoustic treatment, and they think, well, if a big studio like that has it, then I need it. And, and, Mm. you know, they think that like, if they put a bunch of diffusers in the room, all of a sudden the room's going to sound like a big room and it probably won't. (laughs) But, um, yeah, like sometimes, you know, there are a lot of different things as far as ratios and all that, that come into it. So you you have to just be mindful of that and don't just try to copy what you see on a big, bigger scale and shrink it down, you know? No. And it's, it's funny. One of the, and this is the thing that I, cause my main live room, it's about, in your in feet, it's about thirty-five foot and long, fifteen, sixteen foot wide. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of a mid-sized studio live room. You know, but it's a very balanced room, and people kind of go, "Oh, well, I get a big drum sound here." You know, and the, you know, and I, I like even at that size, I I suffer. The, you know, people come in and go, "Oh, my drum sound big enough here," and the the thing is that a big room isn't a big drum sound. Because the first thing, if you look at a big studio, normally when they're recording tr- drums, the first thing you'll see is either a ceiling thing which is down over the drums or around them are, are right. a load of baffles. <laughs> you know, they're controlling because the room's too big, you know, and there's all these reflections and everything in it. So, because I, I suffered with that as well when I was trying to do here and you're looking at these big studios and you're kind of going, oh, my studio's never going to be as big as that. It's not going to be able to do this. And it wasn't until we pressed record here and went up and it was just kind of going, yeah, it's like, you know, those, and then you start looking back at the pictures and go, 
Yeah, all, they they deadened all their rooms just to try and get a bigger sound, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, you know, the fancy photos have a lot to answer for because it's not always how the sound is, you know? No, you're so you're so right. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that because, yeah, like I, my mind immediately, you think of big drums, you think of like a big room. And then every time I've ever been in a big room, it's like, yeah, we're, we're baffling the shit out of everything and it makes it sound yeah. better. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, those big rooms, they're really hard to balance out. Because essentially, you know, you want the life of a big room if you want to get that big reverb. But that's going to kill your drum sound, you know, mm-hmm. because there's just so much stuff going on, floating around, and it goes on for ages with a long room and a long, you know, there's, you know, the it, so it, there's a lot of build up in it, like you say, that just has to be taken out. Um, so it's a really interesting one, and like you say, it's it's kind of one of those myths. But we kind of grew up with that, seeing mm-hmm. big studio, big thing, you know, equals big record, and and that really, really isn't true. Yeah, you know, I you know I do really believe that like people in home studios can get great results that sound just as good as a lot of the big big places. Yeah. And yeah, maybe maybe like you don't have that natural room ambience that you mic up, but there's a lot of plugins out there that can get you that room sound just as good. You know, so yeah, it, you know, I think I think people who are working in small spaces like don't be afraid to record in a tight dead space and then add some ambience with a reverb plugin or something. You know, usually no, that'll get you the I... same result. Absolutely. Like we, we, you know, our smaller room down the bottom is 12 foot by 11. It's got a curved ceiling, which, you know, it, that, that's pretty much the size of, you know, most double bedrooms, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's an amazing room for drums Um, jazz drums sound in there. Even rock drums sound amazing. They're huge. It's really close. It's punchy. Um, Is there a lot of, there's a bass trap on the ceiling and I do have a little bit of zigzag kind of Helmos resonators on one side, right? Um, but they're homemade. They look really nice, you know, we, we built them. So it's not a big room, but drums sound amazing. And like you say, okay, room ambience, but I suppose one of the things is that if your kit is always set up in a room, that means you can slowly, finely tune your mic placement every day that it's not moving, you know, and your mics are staying stuck where they are. Mm-hmm. And you can find that spot because you will find somewhere, even in a little bit of a grotty room, there'll always be, you know, a pair of 57 against a wall or something like that. You'll mm-hmm. always get something that's amazing for blowing up or distortion, you know? So yeah. again, it's looking at what you have mm-hmm. because there will always be points in the room which are sound amazing. You know, yeah. it's just you have to find them. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because that was one thing that I meant to ask you is that when I was looking at your Instagram profile, you had some uh, videos where you were walking through your drum setup. And one of the things that caught my attention was that you had a bunch of interesting mic positions for for your mics. And there was a okay. couple where like you had uh, mics pointing at the wall and stuff like that. Like, you know, most people think you point a mic at a drum kit or you, mo- you point at the source. Um, but yet you were pointing things at like the wall, which I thought was really interesting. Right. Um, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about like the thought process behind that and, and maybe how you came to, to the conclusion that those were, that that was a position for it. Yeah. Well, I suppose I've always had, I've always had a thing for a long time is that I always have one random mic. So when I'm walking out and I've kitted it up, I'll always have, it could just be a dynamic. It doesn't matter what the microphone is. It's whatever I have left over. I'll stick it on a stand and I will point it somewhere different. You know, it, it just mm-hmm. gets a random spot. I'll walk off. I'll just see somewhere. I'll point it at that and I walk out and I leave it um, to see what happens, you know. Um, but pointing at the wall, like, you know, a PZM mic, you know, sound is, sound is at its loudest just on its reflecting off a wall. So you're getting this colossal amount of volume getting compressed into the diaphragm of the mic at that point. Mm -hmm. And if it's down low, you can kind of, even just a little bit of turning, you can essentially cue that then so you're losing high end off it. If you want it down a bit further, you're going to get more lows, less cymbals. You can even just slightly hide it. And, you know, those through, you know, if you were to talk outboard a distressor, but, you know, inside in Pro Tools for me, the you know the stock limiter compressor three yeah in Pro Tools 
Like that for me do, will do exactly what a distressor does, you know, because it breaks up so easily on, on nuke. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those mics through that just gives you this amazing, you know, drum sound. So, yeah, I've always kind of had a little bit of interest in, 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 in the one you're looking at, the random mic. But I found where some of those really work. So when I want an extra blown up room sound, that's a really mono crush thing. I'll, I'll always have something pointing at, at a surface, you know? Love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, another one that then, I noticed was that you would have mics like pointing down at the floor as well. Yeah. So my, I'd often have it like, I suppose stereo room mics for me are funny because I think once you step away from a drum kit, the stereo... The, what you get off the overheads, that stereo image disappears very quickly. Mm-hmm. You kind of get, if you're standing to the left or the right sort of sound off it, but, you know, two equidistant mics further back, good, you, they're not going to, they, it still doesn't add up to the same stereo image, you know? Yeah, it doesn't quite you have like that same a, separation or definition, I guess, right? It, it, I, I just, you know, it becomes more mono to me as you work, as you walk back from it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so when I'm pointing at the floor, if let's say the symbols are bright and I want a bit of rumble off the low end of the kit, I want that realism. It's maybe a dryish sound on the kit. So maybe they'll be close to the kit pointing at the floor. So it's, it's getting most of the, the underside and the resonances off the toms and kick drum. But as it's pointing down, it's getting a lot less of the symbols. So I'm, I'm already getting quite a dark room tone on that. Mm. No, it's essentially pre-EQing it. Yeah, yeah, you it makes know? sense. I mean, um, you're, you're getting rid of like the direct sound and just capturing something that's a little bit darker because you don't have that direct in there. Yeah. Now sometimes they will be flat to the floor, pointing at the under the kit, or pointing slightly up. It it, it kind of it's like everything with drum miking really for me. It depends on the player, their dynamic, their symbols, their symbol heights. You know, so my overheads would never be in the same place. You know, they'll always move depending on that, <clears throat> on that relationship of triangulation when I'm looking at a kit in my head, you know? Yeah. Um, because I see, you know, every, every drummer, you, you know, they, if another, if the drums stay the same, the different drummer sits down, suddenly everything's at a different height, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, that, that's what, you know, I suppose. And again, it comes back to the acoustics thing of like, I always find that a little bit fascinating. Okay. How do I make this work? Okay. It, this guy sounds a bit different, you know? So I think less about maybe where, I would think about where the sound we want to go to is, but also kind of mic placement will have to definitely be, you know, taking a lot of consideration to the player's technique and also setup, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah, I I, I think drum mics, is, it's such an interesting thing. You can like, a lot of people don't think that they can, put mics in random places or not pointing at the instrument. And sometimes that's what gets you the biggest, coolest sound. Cause you yeah. can crush the shit out of those things too. With, like you said, with the limiter and, and that just makes it make, make your room seem even bigger, you know? Yeah, no. And, and it's like, there's, there's times, you know, one of those is quite funny. Actually, I just did this record. This is kind of like probably about 2009 or 2010. And we recorded this, the drums are in the main room and, at the end of it, you know, the drummer was here, we'd listen to it and I went to do a mix and the first note I got back was actually, I was thinking the drums more sound should sound more like, like this Flaming Lips record, you know, <laughs> which is a really characterful, you know, garage sound and drum kit. And I was like, I remember reading it going, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, there was a, that's a real stylistic choice that really needed to happen yeah, and yeah. having something up, you know, and I kind of <laughs> opened the session again. And I was like, God, how am I going to get that sound out of a traditional overheads, close mic kind of sound? And then I kind of found, you know, I'd done one of my little random things. I'd left a 57 in, a, in the other room with the door open and it was pointing the wrong way. I was like, OK, what will this do? I put a compressor on it. It blew it up. And I was like, there's the sound. Yeah. You know? That and I put that up, and I just added a little bit of the close mics just for a tiny bit of definition. And literally, that one fifty-seven pointed the wrong way was ninety percent of that drum sound. Wow. Yeah, but yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think sometimes like the coolest mics are the ones that 
are just in a room away from where you're recording and you know like you said the door slightly open and down the hall or in a bathroom or something like that like places that you don't think mike should belong usually end up sounding the coolest yeah i think like you know the close sound of anything you know that's kind of your safety zone you have a pair of overheads and you have your close mics right like that's going to get you a traditional clear you know punchy drums you know it's going to get a traditional drum setup Mm-hmm. But as soon as someone wants a bit of character in their recording, and I think, I suppose one of the most, uh, this kind of touches on another real big thing I'm into is like knowing what someone wants, what their vision for something is. And that in my head, that's always having a, there's a picture on the wall over there and everyone's looking at that picture and it's kind of, it's going in that direction. And I think you have to have that first and foremost. You know, it's not just about a drum sound. It's like, ultimately, what's the sonics of this to be? And where's the character? And what's that emotive thing coming from? Or whatever way that works for you and the artist to figure that out. And then that gives you a lot of freedom when you know that. And you can kind of go, right, now I can, you know, those, like I said, those close mics overhead, that's your your standard kit sound. That's going to be safe. It's going to work. Um, Where do I look for the character? What gives this its uniqueness? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and that again comes to the picture on the wall, kind of look, that's the direction we're heading. And it's trying to find, then you're trying to find the things that are going to actually help bring this. And it can be any instrument. What is going to bring that into that picture? You know? Um, Absolutely. And that would be something I'd look at all the time because that's the difference between, you know, that sentence, which I kind of hate. It's like, oh, we can, we can make that happen in post. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like kind of going, well, can we make it happen here so you feel like we're you're a step closer to your creative, you know, we're, we're going in that direction. And that's suddenly always, whenever you get those little things, suddenly the artist then, that empowers them because they can see their thing coming together. They're not thinking about, oh, you know, we'll mix that in. You know, it, it gives confidence in what they're trying to do. And I think that unleashes a sense of creativity and that creative, uh, you know, that creative back and forth. Yeah. And they're trying to trust you a little bit more with their creative, with their creative ideas because you're trying to make them happen for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, I think room mics and the room back from it, they, they kind of are a lot of that character. If you're a recording engineer and the character mics, they're where the big clinical sound doesn't work. That's where you're in your small room and you open like, like exactly you say, you open the door, you go down and you put a mic, you know, it could be the toilet two, you know, two doors down and it's in there and you blow that up and then you've got this reverbed drum sound or, or reverbed anything sound, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and if that's what the texture is working for that person's thing, their vision, well, well, ultimately, you know, it's just going to be much better because one, you're listening to them. They know they're being listened to. You're getting to enjoy it. You're getting to be creative as an engineer, not just going, this is snare top, snare bottom, rack top, rack bottom. You know, you're, you know, it, it, for me, you're starting to use what you, if you're a recording engineer, you're starting to work, you use the skill set that you have of recording to be creative, you know? Yeah. And I think, but ultimately you need a little bit of time for that. And we don't have as much time as they had in the 90s you know, three weeks or four weeks to do a thing or six months or whatever it was. I don't know, but we don't have it anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you kind of have to be thinking on your feet to kind of go, you only might get one or two, you're not going to get a half a day to figure it out. So you do have to try and try and find those little, when you get 10, 15 minutes to throw up an extra mic in a place and try and look for a little bit of texture, you know? Uh, yeah. And I suppose that's where the random micing came for me at the start. Mm-hmm. because I was under time pressure. So it was something I wasn't thinking about. I was like, okay, I'll just throw this here and see what happens. And I'll, you know, I'll make the most of it later and I'll process that in my own head, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I did loads of stuff. I'd leave steel pipes in the room. I'd mic them up. I'd leave, you know, to see what happened. Uh, which is quite interesting because it turns out each of those pipes has its own key because of the <laughs> length of it. <laughs> so you'd get these mad out, of, you know, they'd be either... They could be cool drum sounds, but they'd be out of the key. They wouldn't be in the key of the song, you know, because <laughs> they'd have this pingy resonance in them. So you'd end up pitching them a little bit and everything. 
which could also be quite cool as well, you know. That's fun. Um, but I think that for me is a lot of the fun, you know. And ultimately, I think it, it if you're of that mindset, there's a creative freedom within you that needs to be, you know, you have to rub that, scratch that itch, you know. Mm-hmm. I love that, man. And I, I love that you talked about having like starting with the vision in mind. And I think that's such an important thing because you're right. It's like we shouldn't all just mic up everything the exact same way. We have to be thinking about what is the final goal. And, and uh, you know, if there was if there was only one way that worked, then we would all just copy that exact method every single time. And every record would sound yeah. the same, you know. But I think, right, it's like there there's these little things that go into making production sound pro. And it's it's often these little character elements that are just the random thing that is maybe not yeah. the technically perfect way to do it, but it, it, it's the thing that gave it character. And it's what makes that record sound cool. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, technically perfect, you know. You know, it, it kind of doesn't, it, you know, I know exactly what you're saying, but, you know, in, in a lot of ways that jars completely with comp- with creativity. Fair, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, like, I you know, I understand it because it's like, when you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I've suffered from that. I get this right, but, you know, it sounds right, but ultimately it's wrong for this song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I think that's, you know, and and that's something which has nothing got to do with money. It comes back to the very start of this conversation, which you rightly said. It's nothing got to do with money. It's nothing got to do with gear. It's, you know, it's none of those things. It's like, you know, the Bistruder's turned off, the Behringer's working, <laughs> but this guy's listening to what needs to happen and is ultimately trying to trying their best to make that happen. Um, and that's going to be ultimately probably, you know, bar a few very specific genres which are super radio ready and a very certain thing, that's going to be creatively far more interesting for most artists. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's it's ultimately going to probably make something which is going to stand out. Of course. You know, the thing that you're not, you're not sure about and it's like, oh, I like this, but it's kind of sounds a bit wrong. That's probably a good thing, you know, because it's something you haven't done before. Something hasn't happened before, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's yeah, often the a, thing that inspires people, right? And they, that gets them excited about their projects. And I, I, I like what you said earlier about, you know, by by having that vision in mind and by executing on it at the source and not being like, yeah, we're going to fix this in post. Yeah. You're building trust with that band. You're making them feel excited by the project. Like right away. It, it's really, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of like, you know, bringing people in to check out your studio and building that trust. Like that's what this is all about. You're, you're continuing that whole trend throughout the entire project. And, and because of that, that's what's going to make people excited and happy with the results and having coming back to you, you know? Yeah, well, ultimately, if you, you know, that building of trust, you know, you're not going to, no matter where you start, you know, you're never, if you're starting out, you you know, you're never going to walk in and it's going to be super famous person says, oh my God, I want you to make my new record. You've no track list. You've never done anything before, but, you know, I, I think you should, you're the person for me. None of us ever started. I don't know anyone who ever started with that, you know, mm-hmm. Um. You, you do have to learn to build trust. And by building trust, you start building better records because your skill set gets better. And, you know, you learn to fly as you're falling, you know, and it's the only way to learn. Um, because, you know, as much as we can learn things from courses, from online stuff, ultimately, if if you're thinking about the sonic vision and you're trying to find that, you know, that that, that essentially is what we're trying to do you know, is, is make records for people, you know? Of course. Yeah. Love that. I think that's a great spot to start to wrap things up. Uh, one last question for you at the end of the day, ultimately in your opinion, what makes a great mix? Ultimately my, my, I suppose for me, it's very simple. If I sit down and listen to a song and it gets me from one end to the other without ever thinking about, something mundane like if I think in the middle of a song oh did I turn off my lights did I do that that song is you know as soon as I think of if if I if my brain switches on and hears something mundane in my head the song has lost me it's lost my attention 
you know, and that's always been my metric. You know, if I can't, if I listen to it and one end to the other and I sit there and go, wow, um, that's a good mix. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing technical. It's a story. I think you that's know, the first time someone's answered it, answered this question like that. You know? okay. <laughs> usually, usually it's something technical or something like that. No, but I think you're right. Like, you know, if, 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 if you're just like so ingrained in the song and nothing is causing you to be distracted from that song, then, then you've nailed it for sure. Yeah, like it's because there's, like you say, there's a million, there's no right or wrong. There's nothing technical. It's, you know, I think Andrew Schweppes, I saw him one day saying, all that people care about is what comes out of the two speakers. You can never say to them, oh, we haven't done this part of the mix or that. They're just going to hear that and like it or not like it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ultimately, that's all there is. They don't care if there's too much compression or too little compression. It's either it brings them through as a story. Um. Yeah, so it's it's I think simple metrics really work in this world, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. I love that, man. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, if people want to learn more about you, your studio, or maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to follow you online and learn more? Uh, Hellfire Studios Dublin is our Instagram, but the website is Hellfire Studio uh, Ireland. Really, HellfireStudio.ie. Okay. Um, it is us. Um, it's nothing demonic. Uh, it's not that we're a metal studio, and which is great. We do. There's people that do metal here and all that. But our local landmark is called the Hellfire Club, which looks over us. So we're kind of we're inspired. But that building is kind of the same age as ours, kind of seventeen fifty, eighteen hundred. So it's more. Nice. It's, it's got to do with our locality. I love it. Yeah, I was curious about the name and and where that came from. So that's very cool. Right on, man. Well, Joe, thank, again, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, yeah, I think we covered a lot of great ground here that people are going to love and lots of stuff that people can apply to their home studio. And, you know, I hope that this has inspired people to, you know, try being creative and, and experiment with mm. things in, in their spaces. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate all the, all the advice you share here today, man. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. So that was my interview with Joe McGrath. And I thought that was awesome. I really loved learning about, you know, how he got started and how he built his studio and some of the the struggles that he faced early on because i think that whether you're building a big facility like joe did or not if you're trying to get into the business of running a studio there's going to be ups and downs in your business there's going to be difficult times that you have to battle through and i think it was really refreshing to hear joe talk about some of those early struggles but also how he overcame those and i also thought it was really great to dive into the acoustic design side of things and i i thought it was really fun to hear joe talk about you know how just having a wardrobe in, in like or having a closet behind you as you're mixing like something like that could be really advantageous so you know just because you're mixing out of a home studio don't dismiss the fact that you can get great results there so i thought it was great to talk about that And I also thought it was really fun to talk about how Joe approaches creative freedom in engineering and how he does that through using unique mic positioning and really experimenting. And that idea of using a random mic, it's the coolest way to learn how to really take advantage of the space that you have. And if it sucks, it sucks. If it's great, you use it. You know, it's like something as simple as that as far as learning your craft. And what's great about it is that you can follow your typical process for miking something but you're learning at the same time. And yeah, like I said, if it's good, it's good. If not, you don't use it. But you're continuously pushing your skills, experimenting, trying new things. And as a result of that, you're going to get stronger as an engineer and you're going to get better, cooler sounds because of it. So yeah, I'm really glad that Joe brought up all of that stuff in this interview. So yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I hope that you did too and that you took a bunch of great stuff from this. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're someone who's working on new music, but you're feeling stuck with your productions and you're not quite sure what you should be doing, or maybe how you should mic up your instruments to get the best sounds, or how to edit them to get things sounding tighter, or how to mix them to get your track sounding polished and clear and have all of the different instruments working well together. If you're looking for one-on-one help to achieve all of that, then inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, that's exactly what I can help you with. Inside of this program, I work one-on-one with my students to help them get the results that they truly want. If there's a specific album sound that you're going for, we're going to reverse engineer how they got that sound and how you can do it in your home studio too. And then as you're working on your mixes, you can get back and forth feedback on your tracks so that you're not getting stuck. Instead, you're getting actionable steps to take to help elevate the quality of your music and to feel more confident that you're taking the right steps and to truly get results that make you feel proud and excited to share your music. 
So if you're interested in learning more about this program, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, and that's where you can find all of the information all about this program. And I would love to hop on a call with you to learn more about your personal goals, your current processes, and to see if I can help you. I only accept people in this program who I truly believe I can help. And if I can't, I will tell you to go elsewhere. But if I truly believe I can help you, then I would love to work with you to help you get them to that level that you expect. So once again, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude to find out more information about that. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.